You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, reporting, or recording from Maryland. Good to be back with you, Katie. How are you doing? Doing good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, summer is almost at a close, uh, but it's good to be back uh, discussing uh, a range of issues. Uh, today, I think we'll focus a bit on recent developments in South Asia, uh, for listeners, I think what we'll talk about today uh, is going to be the terrible tragedy that's playing out in Pakistan, where we've basically seen the worst flooding anywhere in the world since at least 2017. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but then I do also want to focus a bit on Sri Lanka, which I know a few listeners did reach out about, given that Sri Lanka has gone through a tumultuous year of political turmoil and economic turmoil. Uh, and, and there is an interesting geopolitical story this August uh, regarding Sri Lanka's position between India and China, but we'll try to over- offer an overall update on the situation in Sri Lanka. Uh, but Katie, let's uh, begin with Pakistan, uh, where we really just have to talk about these devastating floods, which uh, are just, I mean, stunning. If, if listeners haven't already, I highly recommend just Googling the satellite images showing the before and after, uh, particularly with the infrared imagery showing where the water has deposited in the country. According to Pakistan's climate minister, around a third of the country's territory is basically inundated uh, or underwater. Um, The videos that came out over the weekend are just stunning. Uh, I mean, just whole buildings being washed away. Uh, The reason for this, of course, uh, is climate change, uh, the intensification of the South Asian monsoon, which is causing unpredictable patterns in South Asia. Just as Pakistan has experienced devastating flooding, India actually experienced a period of drought this year, which led India to roll back its food exports. So we talk about climate risks occasionally uh, on the podcast, but I do want to sort of emphasize it in the context of this story. I mean, climate risks absolutely can and do have geopolitical consequences. Uh, And I think, Katie, this might be a good spot to kind of just zoom out a little bit and talk a little bit about the tumultuous year that Pakistan has been having politically and economically. I think maybe let's begin with the economics and then we can talk a bit about the political situation with uh, Imran Khan, who continues to cause trouble. Um, But do you want to tell us a little bit about Pakistan's economic situation? And I guess the latest news about this uh, IMF bailout package that appears to be coming through now? Sure thing. So on Monday, August 29th, uh, the IMF did approve a $1.1 billion bailout package for Pakistan to sort of help the country stave off a default. Uh, We're going to talk about Sri Lanka later, which did go into default earlier this year. Um, And so that came after the Sharif government introduced austerity measures that the IMF essentially said, you need to do these things or we're not going to give you more money. Um, That, however, has included measures that sharply increase domestic fuel prices. Austerity is never fun. Um, And so there's a difficult balance to be maintained between putting in place economic measures that can sort of stave off default for Pakistan and kind of right the economic ship, but don't go so far that uh, the political atmosphere deteriorates. And I think we're definitely seeing this with sort of a resurgence in popularity for Imran Khan, who uh, our our listeners will remember, um, was pushed out of the prime ministership earlier this year, uh, but has uh, no intent on leaving the political scene. Mm-hmm. On you know, I mean, on on this issue uh, of the bailout and Pakistan sort of adopting fiscal restra- restraint as required by the IMF, uh, you know, I think it's too early to say right now. Just because we're just a couple days out from the consequences of this flooding being truly understood, uh, but the early estimates from the Sharif government is that the damage that was inflicted 
order, you know, it's on the order of tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and for the Pakistani state, which has promised, you know, people that have been internally displaced and lost their homes, that they will try to make them whole, give them places to live. Uh, it's just difficult for me to see a way in which, you know, there isn't going to be a degree of tension between pa the Pakistani state rolling back the fiscal measures that it needs to do to meet the INF, um, the IMF's conditionality, while also undertaking the massive effort that will be needed to make the country whole after this devastating flooding. We still don't have a good picture of the full scale of international aid and financial assistance that is coming in. There have been some, you know, packages from the European Union and the United States, but, you know, we're talking about really small amounts so far. Um, but as that comes in, that could make a difference, but it's really hard to imagine aid on the scale that would be necessary to sort of stabilize things. And of course, Katie, as you just noted, uh, you know, political turmoil and economic turmoil are deeply interlinked. Uh, and as we sort of see with the populist, continuing populist support for Imran Khan and broader skepticism of the Sharif government on the Pakistani state writ large, the recipe here for significant uh, domestic disturbances, particularly in Sindh, Balochistan, KPK, where the flooding has been particularly devastating, I think, uh, is something to keep an eye on uh, in uh, in the near term. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're you're definitely right about the intertwined nature of the politics and the economic piece. And then just to add sort of misery upon misery, the, these floods have been absolutely devastating and could not have come at a worse time politically or economically for Pakistan. Um, I think one thread worth sort of keeping tabs on is the international response. I think certainly from the Pakistani perspective, and this is true of a lot of uh, a lot of the world, particularly global south, that didn't necessarily com contribute all that much to global warming in terms of greenhouse gases and sort of how we've ended up at this this warming planet. Um, and the the argument, I think, from these countries is is that the West needs to pay for what it's done. Um, and so that includes sort of helping out more with with these kinds of disasters. Uh, we'll see if that pans out the way that, that Pakistan would like it to. But either way, this is just a terrible time for another bad thing to happen. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, uh, another sort of angle to this that I think is interesting uh, is, you know, the effect that this is likely to have on Pakistan's relations with uh, India. Uh, one of the early indications right mm -hmm. now as we record this again very early uh, is that uh, India and Pakistan are likely to resume cross-border trade, which had been suspended by the Imran Khan government after India changed the status of Kashmir uh, internally. Uh, and so that restoration could, I think, broadly open up a period of rapprochement between the two countries, especially if India is able to offer um, assistance on top of resuming the uh, you know trade across the two countries' land border. I mean, that trade is rather minuscule. It happens along a very you know specified trade route, but it's still, uh, I think, you know, evidence that uh, at least in the short term, this is having uh, some effect on on Pakistan's relations uh, with its neighbors. Um, and, you know, the other question is, you know, the role that China is likely to play. Uh, China, of course, has been an important partner for the Pakistani government uh, and has provided substantial aid uh, in uh, in the course of past disasters, including uh, earthquakes and flooding in the past. So I think, you know, that'll be something to also keep an eye on uh, in uh, in the near term. Well, so, Katie, uh, you know, things in Pakistan, of course, are in flux. Uh, we'll be keeping a close eye at the diplomat, of course, on the economic and political situation in the aftermath of this devastating flooding. But maybe we can pivot now to talking a little bit about Sri Lanka, uh, which has had a devastating year politically, economically. Uh, really, I think it's been seen in many ways as the poster child globally for the kinds of 
political and economic risks that have manifested in the course of the pandemic as a secondary consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which certainly inflicted food insecurity on, on Sri Lanka. Um, but before we sort of dive into um, the specifics of where things are today in the aftermath of the Rajapaksa government collapsing uh, and uh, and the new government now taking over, um, can you maybe bring us up to speed on, uh, you know, what exactly happened in Sri Lanka economically and how it found itself in the predicament that it is in today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this will obviously be a very brief overview. Um, but in after a fashion, I think Sri Lanka represents a canary in the coal mine in, in particularly in South Asia, but but perhaps globally in terms of uh, what happens when you don't uh, invest in sort of long-term sustainable economic policies. So in the, the immediate sense, um, protests began in March uh, over economic mismanagement, sh shortages, inflation, corruption, um, sort of the political situation. Um, but things really kicked into high gear in April when the government defaulted on its foreign debt. Uh, this is something that hasn't happened uh, before in Sri Lanka's history, and so it was pretty significant. Um, protests continued uh, in May. Uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was prime minister, resigned, but his brother Gotabaya remained in the presidency. Protests continued. Uh, in July, we saw these sort of just wild scenes at the presidential um, palace, uh, you know, civilians sort of break into the palace and swimming in the pool, uh, after which Gotabaya fled the country, eventually resigned. Um, there's a new government, which is headed by Ranul Vikram Shenghi. I'm sorry if I pronounced that poorly. Um, but he is a familiar uh, face on the political scene in Sri Lanka, but not a particularly popular one either. Um, but he's currently president. I, I would venture to say that the sort of political situation is somewhat stabilized. That might be too generous, but for now it's somewhat stabilized. Um, but in order to get sort of the country economically back on track, uh, some really difficult decisions have to be made. And as I said, in the, the Pakistan case, austerity is not, not fun for anybody, particularly in the middle of, of cascading crises. Um, I think when you look back, Sri Lanka's current situation was really born out of governments for decades neglecting to put in place policies that would generate more government revenue. And so as spending increased, government re revenue didn't increase. Um, and these are sort of poor tax policies, uh, subsidizing things like energy and electricity. And to make up that difference, the government borrowed heavily. Well, eventually, loans come due. And so this is sort of the cascading problem Sri Lanka is facing is that the policies it needs to put in place now will be really painful to sort of up tax revenue. The government is going to need to tax citizens and businesses more than it has. Uh, and it's also going to have to keep an eye on spending and spend on the things that people really need. And right now, that's a lot of things, food, medicine, uh, electricity. So there's, there's, it's a really like difficult um, situation to get out of once you've sort of slid into it. Um, the IMF is in discussions with the government. Uh, the government is planning to present a budget in parliament in September, and that's going to be a really critical piece in, in whether and how much uh, assistance Sri Lanka gets at that juncture. Yeah, I think I think your point on stability is, you know, well taken. Uh, things are far from being fully stabilized, but I think the trajectory overall, uh, you know, the the volatility in the first half of this year has abated somewhat. Uh, the spectacular images that were on the front pages of newspapers around the world of protesters in the presidential palace uh, in Colombo, I think, uh, you know, that period of the tumult is largely behind Sri Lanka as the new government seeks to sort of stabilize things longer term. Um, 
you know, to sort of talk a little bit about the the geopolitical picture here, uh, you know, I mean, to, to vastly oversimplify things, um, you know, when the Rajapaksas returned to Sri Lanka, um, I think the perception uh, in the United States and in India was that, you know, Sri Lanka would drift closer towards China uh, during mm-hmm. during the presidency of Mahinda Rajapaksa. Um, uh, the first time Sri Lanka really started to drift away from its historical closeness with India and began to pursue a number of projects with with China, including the well-known controversial ones like uh, the 99-year lease for parts of the Hambantada port uh, uh, and uh, and other various projects uh, as well. And so now with Rajapaksa's leaving, I think, you know, India had sort of played an important role as sort of Sri Lanka's closest neighbor and partner with sort of about $4 billion of financial assistance through loans and grants and other concessionary arrangements and so on and so forth, lines of credit uh, to try and help ease the pain uh, as as much as could be possible. And so, you know, I, I just want to draw attention, Katie, to this um, recent incident that just happened in, uh, in in the last few weeks in August. Uh, some of our listeners that, that do track Sri Lanka probably have already heard about this, but I think this is an interesting sort of indicator of just how complex things still remain geopolitically with Sri Lanka. Um, so basically what happened is that uh, a Chinese, quote, research vessel, basically a surveillance ship with the capability to surveil space phenomena in addition to missile tests and so on and so forth. The Yunhuang 5, uh, as the vessel was known, sought to conduct a port call uh, in Sri Lanka. And this was first reported in early August. Um, from there, things got interesting. Um, the The Sri Lankan government sort of flip-flopped on whether it would actually allow the port call to take place. Uh, port mm-hmm. calls in Sri Lanka by Chinese vessels, including PLA vessels and submarines in the past, have been a huge source of tension between India and Sri Lanka in particular. And given that India has, I guess, sort of played this role in uh, in assisting Sri Lanka economically, I think the new government uh, in Colombo was perhaps attuned to the possible risks of allowing the port call to go forward. Um, in any case, this sort of led to, you know, the issue sort of bubbling to the surface, it became sort of a prominent piece of how the Indian and Sri Lankan, uh, sorry, the Indian and Chinese governments began to communicate in Sri Lanka. Their various embassies were sort of releasing statements, writing articles, talking about why this was sort of, you know, evidence of, um, of you know, each country sort of harming Sri Lanka's interests, so to speak. Um, but eventually, you know, Sri Lanka asked China to defer the port call. Uh, India communicated its concerns to Sri Lanka. Um, and the other piece of interesting evidence, you know, that I think, uh, or at least context here, is that in August, the Indian army was actually carrying out a test of uh, satellite communications. Uh, and so that, I think, you know, gives this visit a little bit of an interesting context, which is that I think India probably suspected that this Chinese vessel was in the Indian Ocean to surveil whatever satellite-based communications, you know, um, were being tested by the Indian army. Um, so, you know, long and short of this is that it's, I think, more complicated to, uh, you know, than it might seem that, you know, Sri Lanka isn't necessarily drifting towards India away from China. I think relations with both countries are going to remain important just given over the last 10 to 15 years, the number of economic and political connections China has built uh, in the island. But I think it does highlight, uh, you know, the continuing volatility uh, of the geopolitical alignment, so to speak, of many of these smaller states uh, in the Indo-Pacific like Sri Lanka. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of, you know, flag that a bit because i think that's uh, been an interesting development uh, in the last few weeks yeah and and i think just to add 
the to loop it back into the economic piece, Sri Lanka is going to need all the help that it can get. And so that means sort of trying to maintain decent relationships with both India and China, um, which both uh, have done a lot in Sri Lanka and, and can potentially help sort of stabilize the situation further. And so, you know, kind of dancing between the giants is, is a difficult task. Right. Well, Katie, I think uh, we'll leave it there for today. A little bit of a shorter discussion, but I did want to sort of bring things back to South Asia, uh, if uh, if just temporarily. But uh, certainly, you know, we'll be back talking about South Asia soon. Um, before we wrap up, though, do you want to give our listeners a preview of the upcoming issue of the magazine? Yes, I would absolutely love to. Uh, so the, the magazine will actually come out... Um tomorrow, which is August 31st, but it'll be available uh, thereafter. It's the September issue. Uh, the cover story uh, focuses on the uh, Chinese uh, Congress process, uh, which was just announced, uh, the, the CCP's um, I guess every five years, Congress is going to meet October 16th. And so the nuts and bolts of the piece look at at how, how that actually works, uh, because we, we focus so much on what the outcome, Xi Jinping probably getting his sort of nod into his, his third, uh, I'm using air quotes term, um, but it, it sort of picks apart how that process actually works from the inside. Um, we also have an article focused on uh, Uzbekistan's many ethnic minorities, uh, which sort of flashed into, I think, international attention this summer when there were protests in Karakalpakstan. Uh, we also have a really excellent piece on the Sri Lankan economic situation. So if you thought my comments were interesting, read that article, because that's where they come from. And then, of course, our final piece is by uh, Ankit himself, looking at North Korea's nuclear policy shifts. Uh, he talks about uh, tactical nukes. And so uh, this is a, an issue not to be missed. Uh, and we hope that you take a look and subscribe uh, and, and let us know what you think. Definitely do that. And uh, that's very kind of you, Katie. Well, we'll see if the North Koreans actually carry out a seventh nuclear test soon. But if they do, we'll definitely talk about it on the podcast. So uh, thanks a lot, Katie. Good to, be, uh, good to be with you as always. And to our listeners, if you like what you heard on the show, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. You can do that really anywhere you get your shows. It really helps the show out. So thanks a lot. And we'll be back soon with more.